Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz from NCAA.com and all our March Madness platforms. Well... We are ready for Feast Week in college basketball. As we're taping this, the Maui Invitational is already underway. We've already had a number of tournaments over the past couple of days. Purdue, in a very exciting game, lost to Virginia Tech on Sunday down in South Carolina. UCF ended up winning their tournament over Western Kentucky, also in the state of South Carolina. That one was in Myrtle Beach. Purdue, Virginia Tech was in Charleston. Michigan had an unbelievable week. Knocking off Villanova on the road. I was there on Wednesday. And then over the weekend, taking care of GW and Providence in Connecticut. Uh, as we're taping this, there's a Monday night matchup of the Paradise Jam between Missouri and Kansas State. Kansas State, clearly one of the best teams in the Big 12 as they go into that final in the Paradise Jam. Uh, there also were some significant sort of games throughout the course of the week where Furman, a team that, by the way, I had in my Power 36 but the AP did not, yet Furman won at Villanova. Jordan Lyons, my National Player of the Week. Michigan, my Team of the Week. So Furman wins at Villanova. They already won at Loyola Chicago. That's two Final Four teams they knocked off, and they can't crack the top 25 in the AP? Come on. Well, the criticism of me would be, well, where did you have them, Andy? Okay, I didn't have them in the top 25, but (laughs) I did have them in my power rankings. So... I at least had them, you know, in the mix for thinking about putting them in the top 25. I ended up slotting them a little bit further down at number 34. So uh, I was just trying to tease you there at the beginning that, that they weren't in the top 25. And I had them in. I had them outside. Buffalo is in the top 25, which they should be after winning at West Virginia and looking like a top 25 team, they're at number 22. Uh, I have them a little higher in my poll. You know, these teams, and we're going to talk to Mike DeCourcy about these. He's uh, from the Sporting News, longtime columnist, uh, also works for the Big Ten Network. We're going to talk a little national scene later in the podcast. I have Buffalo at 16. We're going to discuss, actually, what Buffalo and Furman will have to do to get into the NCAA tournament as at large schools. Michigan was my team of the week, as I just mentioned. When you look back at the national championship game and take a look at Michigan-Villanova, yes, Villanova lost more, four players that ended up going in the NBA draft. But the assumption was, by me and many others, that they would be back as the team to beat in the Big East. And right now that team may be Butler. Maybe it's still going to be Marquette, although they got drilled in Indiana. And maybe it'll ultimately still be Villanova. But Villanova has not looked the part, getting drilled by Michigan at home, then losing in overtime to Furman. These are not results that tell you that Villanova is ready yet. Their freshmen have still a ways to go. Javon Quinterly, Quinterly excuse me, uh, was expected to be the star, and he's just not ready yet. Phil Booth, Eric Pascal, 
certainly are the two anchors, but they can't do it alone. There was just more of them last season, of, of veteran guys who could make big shots, who could defend. Michigan, Iggy Brasdikas. Brasdikas, Brasdikas. Just call him Iggy. Uh, I'll get that pronunciation correct. What a sensational find for John Beeline. Got presence. He's just got a toughness about him. He compliments Charles Matthews. Xavier Simpson has moxie. Tough point guard. Isaiah Livers can defend. Uh, I just, I really like this Michigan team. And right now, I'm readjusting my picks to win the Big Ten. I'm taking Michigan right now. Uh, And look, I didn't have Ohio State. I had them at the bottom third of the Big Ten. And Ohio State last week knocked off Creighton on the road. So we all do the preseason predictions. We're all wrong. We all try to make, (laughs) we all try to make at least a little sense of them. Uh, I mean, I'm not wrong at the top. Uh, might have been a little at Kentucky at the beginning, but I still had Kansas right up there, Gonzaga, Virginia, Carolina. Um, at Duke a little further back, now I got them at the top. So I still believe in Kansas, Gonzaga, and Virginia, and North Carolina. Waiting to see how Auburn and Tennessee do this week. Uh, Nevada won't get tr- really tested for a little bit longer. Uh, so Nebraska, by the way, is another team that needs to get tested. Sleeper team out there that's playing really well that I'm going to see later this week in Las Vegas is UCLA. They're going to take on Michigan State and then either Texas or North Carolina. That's a huge indicator for the Bruins. We'll learn a lot about them. If there's one team, as I look over my Power 36 here on Monday, that I probably should have in there, it's Arkansas. Arkansas beat Indiana on Sunday at home. They lost in overtime to Texas at Fort Bliss in the Armed Forces Classic the week before. So I probably miffed, missed excuse me, on that one. That's the one I wish I could have back and probably should have had in here. Um, a couple other highlights. St. Louis had a good win at Seton Hall. They were the preseason pick to win the 8-10. Right now they look like the best team with Davidson second. UCF rebounded well after a loss to Florida Atlantic. As I mentioned, they won their tournament. Um, if I wasn't going to go with Michigan as the team of the week, then the other team would have been Iowa because Iowa had two of the most important wins they've had in a long time. They knock off Oregon on Thursday in New York, and then they beat Connecticut, which beat Syracuse. Uh, as I mentioned in my column here, Villanova, Syracuse have some issues right now. West Virginia as well has turned the ball over much too much, too mu- you know, just too much to win at this level. That has to come down. UConn's win over Syracuse was a monster victory for Dan Hurley in his first season at UConn. Just there's so much significance in that. Uh, the race for player of the year is only a couple weeks old, but I like the chase with Zion Williamson of Duke and Carson Edwards of Purdue. I think Ethan Happ is making a strong case. He had 30 and 13 in the victory over Xavier. He's going to be in the mix the whole season. And then Kansas coach Bill Self told us that Diedrich Lawson was going to be the player of the year out of the Big 12 and maybe nationally? How about LeGerald Vick? 32 and 33 in two games. Eight for eight and three is against Vermont. It may be Vick. So a lot happening. A lot's going to happen this week. I'm going to be in Las Vegas to see Nevada play Tulsa and then Michigan State, Texas, excuse me, Michigan State, UCLA, Texas, North Carolina. That's a Thursday, Friday. Winners and losers will play on the Friday after playing Thursday. So... Uh, I'm really excited to look to get a chance to see that tournament, see Nevada before play Tulsa. Uh, but on this podcast, don't want you going anywhere. 
I'm going to be joined by Grant Williams of Tennessee and a special treat, I think it is. Uh, Tom Sikoyak is the Sports Information Director at Tennessee, and he's someone I want you to hear from. So we're going to hear from Grant Williams and then Tom Sikoyak from Tennessee. You're going to hear from Pepperdine's Lorenzo Romar on the wildfires in Southern California, and then Mike DeCourcy will wrap it up and give us a little national perspective. As always, I really appreciate you listening to our podcast as we try to cover the country like no one else. And joining me here on March Madness 365, Tennessee's Grant Williams. The Vols later this week will be in New York for the NIT season tip-off. Take on Louisville and then the winner or loser. See how it goes. They'll play either Kansas or Marquette. So big week for Tennessee. But so far, the Vols have looked like it's February or March taking care of Georgia Tech prior to that, you know, just just handling the competition as you should. Uh, how would you describe the way in which this group is playing at this juncture here in mid-November, Grant? I would say that the guys are really locked in. These guys are, we've been with each other for the past three years, so we're kind of, we know what it takes to grind out a season. So in the beginning, it's all about, um, identity and, and making sure that we create that again because no team is the same. We all improved and we all got better in a certain way. So just adding to each other and learning more from each other is like it's a new year. So in practice, how much is Coach Barnes teaching versus fine-tuning and you know putting in plays and things like that just to sort of get you from game to game? A lot of it's tuning because we know the playbook. It's more of just understanding still spacing the assignments on defense and also meshing to the difference that we have. A lot of guys have gotten better on defensive end and moving their feet and guarding the perimeter, as well as on the offensive end, a lot of guys put the ball in the basket now. So we're trying to figure out more of the identity that we want to still have and what we have had the past couple of years and then adding to our skill set. So with these games coming up later this week in New York with Louisville and then either Kansas or Marquette, what do you want to find out about your group? We know that we want to find out how tough we're still the toughest team in the country. That's something that we want to make a staple of and as well as we want to progress because nothing's going to be perfect, but as long as we take the next step and continue to get better, um, that's going to be a win for us because we know how talented both teams, all the three of the teams are. Louisville's really talented with VJ and Steven and those guys, and as well as Kansas or Marquette, whoever we play the second second game. So you say you, you want to be or you are the toughest team in the country, but how do you define that? It's both mentally and physically. Right now we have to rebound the basketball is one of the biggest things, and also uh, defensively we're trying to be the best team in the country. So by that, that shows toughness. And if you consistently do that, it'll translate onto the court. And for us, it's all about being tough from a physical standpoint and locking in and doing a good job controlling our, the boards and guarding, as well as the mental side of it, of understanding the game plan, understanding the scouting report, as well as understanding what our goal is. You know, Grant, I'm curious. Obviously, when you guys lost to Loyola Chicago at the in the last seconds, I mean, that was in the NCAA tournament. Obviously, it's got a larger meaning. We've already seen this season – Furman goes into Villanova. Furman went into Loyola Chicago. Uh, drop it down. IUPUI went in and won at BC. Radford won at Notre Dame. When you're on the other side of that, you're one of those power schools, What, whether it's the tournament or in November, what's that feeling like when you are expected to win and then you don't? I would just say you can never underestimate any team. Um, there's a lot of talent 
in the college basketball and a lot of great coaching. So a team like Furman, we played them last year, and they gave us a run for our money. And we've only, I think, beat them by six or seven. And we knew how talented they were. It's just a matter of um, being locked in and focused, just as if you were playing the number two team in the country versus a uh, mid-major who's really talented. Uh, you look at guys like we played Louisiana, who's – a really good team. They put really put the ball in the basket. They got on transition well, and they go in and played Kansas tight. And at, I think it was at Allen, Allen Fieldhouse, being beaten by six. So um, it's just a matter of locking in and to the scout report and trusting your coaching staff as well as doing your job. Because if you don't, if you slack off, you're always going to get someone's best shot. So you got to do what it takes to win. So when you have to sort of create your own energy, because I mean it's human nature when when. And I, and I didn't see, you know, the, the crowds in your games at Thompson Bowling, but I'm going to assume it's not as intense or as loud as when you play Kentucky uh, when you have one of these games coming in there, those these sort of guaranteed buy games. How do you handle that in the pregame locker room to make sure, you're, like you're saying, everyone's locked in, that you're going to give that same effort and intensity even if the crowd and the atmosphere doesn't measure up to it? The best thing about the Tennessee fan base is that they're going to be there supporting us. So I think we had 16,000 the past three games, and that's more than most schools get, and it's really crazy for us. But also coming in with a mindset of um, that every team we play is, is going to be talented or have a potential to win their league. Our schedule is always one of the toughest, and we always know that we're going to have a test every night. So if we do our job, then it'll handle, handle itself. But if we don't, it gives us a chance of losing that game or – or having a close contest, that should have been different. So for us, it's all, always about um, locking in with each other, trusting your brothers, and then going out there and doing it on the court. You know, you mentioned Coach Barnes is sort of tweaking, tuning rather than teaching. But what's been his sort of demeanor with this group, a, a group that really could compete for a Final Four berth? Coach Barnes is the most consistent guy that we know. He's going to bring the intensity every day, no matter if we win by 30 or we lose by on a buzzer beater or lose by 30. He's going to be himself, and he's going to want the most out of us and the best out of us. So he's always going to challenge us, and that's what we love about him. So for Coach Barnes, it's always about improving, and always he's going to find the little things that we did wrong or, or rather than praise the things that we did well. All right, off basketball, what's your favorite thing to do at Tennessee? My favorite thing to do at Tennessee, that might be a tough one because there's a lot of stuff going on, but I love going to see other sporting events. Uh, I love to support my fellow VFL Vol athletes. Uh, our, our soccer team just got to the Elite Eight yesterday, so that's huge for us. Our volleyball team is uh, number two in the SEC, and they're one nine straight. And also, um, you think about our football team is fighting for a bowl game. Uh, against Vanderbilt next weekend. So it's just an excited thing to do to go support other other sports on this campus. Now, I saw you help someone out. Was it changing a tire? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, how often have you – I mean, I can tell you, I, I think I would struggle doing it, and I'm a lot older than you. <laughs> when did you learn how to change a tire? <laughs> I learned it, I think it was my sophomore year. Uh, Folky and I were walking back from practice, and um, a, a girl and a group and her mom and, like, a couple – a group that were tailgating stopped us and said they had a flat and if we asked if we uh, knew how to how to change it. And uh, Folky and I said yes, and Folky t- jacked it up and lifted the car, and I took the tire off, put the spare on, and then we let it lowered it down. So this um, – so Wait, that really video I saw was not recent? That was yesterday. No, oh. two, three days ago. So this happened twice yeah, now. Saturday. Yeah, it was before the Missouri game when people were tailgating, and uh, there was a huge nail. Like the nail was a side – like it was something you – using a nail gun like no not nail gun use something you 
don't see normal like some a, a thing you have in a mini fridge, like one of those big big nails. Right. It was one of those that just got stuck in the tire. So we saw it, we took the tire off and then put it in the in the back of the car and then uh put the spare on. I was under the car. Well, another great community aspect of you that you're you're always aware of your surroundings and helping other people. And before I let you go, Grant, your sports information director and I think it was last week or the week before it was sort of appreciation week for Cosida for the sports information directors. And Tom uh Sikoyak, uh went through an unbelievable difficult situation needing a liver transplant he's back on the job as if nothing has happened you know sometimes i think players coaches media we don't say enough I and mean, what has he meant to you to this program because you're there on the ground you see it firsthand to see someone going through like that and now come back and actually working with you yes tom is amazing he's a guy who brings joy every day to work and he's really helped us grow as athletes and spiritually because he's really involved at the church that we go to and um tom is one of the the our favorite guys around here so to have him back means more than people might know um he's always brought a certain joy and cheer and he's always brought a certain humor that not many people know about him he's probably the biggest prankster that you can meet so to have him back and to show our appreciation to him is huge we might give him a little something that you'll see probably see soon but we're probably gonna give him a little surprise let's say that well it is certainly warranted uh i love the fact that you guys are celebrating him in some form because as you know it takes a village to put on an elite well lead any level college basketball team and there's a lot of unsung heroes behind the scenes and he's one of them so i appreciate it grant thank you thank you and coming up here on march madness 365 you heard grant williams mention him his name is tom sitkoyak and he is the sports information director from the university of tennessee with an amazing story of dealing with an illness recovery and getting right back to work one of the unsung heroes if you will in college athletics. Well, you just heard from Grant Williams, the star of Tennessee, the co-SEC Player of the Year, say some wonderful things about Tom Sikoyak, and with good reason. We don't need, like, an appreciation week for COSIDA, which is the Organization for Sports Information Directors in college, to know how much so many people, like Tom, around the country, not just help people like me, but players, coaches, other personnel around the country that get basically not the recognition that they deserve. Um, and I wanted to bring Tom on for a couple of reasons. One, because I want to thank him because of that. And two, uh, to just, if he could share just briefly with us here on March Madness 365, his story, uh, because he's made an unbelievable recovery uh, from a liver transplant. And so, Tom, if you could just take me back to, when you knew that you were sick, that you were heading down the road where you were going to need such a dramatic procedure? Well, I was uh, about 20 years old uh, back in the year 2000, and that was the time that I was having, uh, I guess, through some GI issues, I was, uh, doctors noticed that I had some elevated liver enzymes. And uh, where I was living at the time in mid-Michigan, where I grew up, uh, the doctors that were there locally really didn't know what to attribute that to. So they sent me to the University of Michigan Medical Center, and a hepatologist there ran some tests and determined that I had a disease of the liver called primary sclerosing cholangitis, or it's commonly referred to as PSC. And it's fairly rare, um, and I had uh, it, mine was related to some autoimmune issues. 
And so when I was 20, I learned that uh, I had this disease and that there was really no cure for it, and it's a gradual scarring and narrowing of the bile ducts in the liver until the point where the bile won't flow and uh, the liver um, becomes you know, no longer viable. And so a transplant really is the only option. So I've known that for, gosh, you know, 18 years um, passed between the time that I knew that and the time that I got the call um, that I was given an, an organ offer. But, you know, I wasn't terribly sick all that time. In fact, my liver continued to function pretty well until about maybe six or seven years ago is when it kind of started to gradually decline and really give me trouble over the past couple of years. But uh, so that's kind of the, the short and easy story of uh, my disease and, and sort of the events that led up to the transplant. Well, I can tell you, I've known you for a while, and I didn't know any of this. And uh, you didn't make it public. You certainly were never someone who drew attention to himself. You did your job as, as one of the best sports information directors in the country. And, you know, just sort of just did it behind the scenes. And, and you, you made sure that everyone got to where they were supposed to be, and the information was out, and really in your, your role, obviously, at Tennessee in an exemplary fashion. So, I think it was weird SEC media day and suddenly I got wind that, you know, you were going through the transplant right then and there. I don't know if it was that day or day before around that time because you weren't able to be in Birmingham because of this. How did that transpire to where suddenly you get the call and boom, you got to go now? Yeah, well, I guess to speak on what you initially mentioned, you know, throughout this whole process and even the past few years when, um, you know, my liver was giving me a lot of trouble. And uh, it's funny, you know, the liver is so valuable. And when it's not functioning the way that it should, it kind of has a domino effect. And, uh, and it touches on all sorts of other things. And you have all sorts of other issues that arise from that. Um, but it was really important for me through that whole process. You mentioned that you didn't know. And, you know, I was really, uh, I guess, cognizant of not wanting to be the guy that was kind of labeled as the sick guy. And so it wasn't something that I talked about it a whole lot. Um, you know, some, some, folks on my staff knew, Coach Barnes knew, and some of our administrators, um, that eventually I was going to have to, it was going to come to a point where I would need a transplant, but I tried to just operate as business as usual um, and just do my job, because really, my job was something that gave me the only sense of normalcy that I had, because, you know, when I wasn't at work, I was, uh, you know, dealing with these other issues, and so work was sort of my escape, and, and, and it gave me just a, a, a way to feel normal. And that's kind of the way that I operate. And I think it helped me sort of get through that, uh, you know, those tougher years here uh, recently. But going to the day that I got the call, it actually was October 17th, and it was the Men's Basketball SEC Media Day. And I was probably about an hour away from uh, going to pick up two of our players, Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield, and driving them to the airport, and we were going to be going to Birmingham for the day. And I think it was around 11.30 that afternoon, I got the call. And really, I've been competitive to receive an organ uh, since April. And so between April and October, it, it kind of changes your life. But you know that at any moment, you could get a phone call, and then they could say, hey, we've got an organ, um, and you've got six hours to get to Vanderbilt, uh, which was my transplant center. And from Knoxville, it's about three hours away. Uh, if you want this organ, you've got six hours to get here, and we'll do the surgery. And when you are living in that reality, every time your phone rings, it's like, you know, your heart starts beating fast. And so I had been dealing with that for several months. And then on October 17th, in that afternoon, around 1130, I got that call and saw that it was Vanderbilt calling me. And sure enough, it was a nurse practitioner with the transplant team. And she said, we have an, we have an organ for you. Here's what we can tell you about it, which is very little. And uh, if you'd like to accept it, you need to head this way to Nashville. And it was something that my wife and I had been prepared for for a long time. I had a a bag sitting out in our spare bedroom with a list of all the things I needed to throw into it. And uh, so within a few hours, we were in Nashville, and I thought that I would actually get the transplant that night, uh, which was, I think, a Wednesday 
October 17th, but the organ wasn't on site yet. And so I ended up spending that night uh, in the hospital there. And first thing in the morning on October 18th, uh, I was taken in for surgery. They thought my surgery would last close to six hours, but mine was a little more complicated and it ended up lasting 11 hours. And uh, so the next day, uh, or I guess later that evening on the 18th, uh, came to and I was told that my first words after I kind of woke up, uh, uh, they took the breathing tube out and I was kind of groggy still. And uh, the person that took the breathing tube out said, Tom, congratulations, you have a new liver. And uh, my answer was unbelievable. And that's all I said. Uh, but it really has been unbelievable. And uh, one thing that I really need to mention is that uh, throughout this whole process, it, it kind of weighs on you, as, as I'm sure it does for any um, organ recipient. But in order for me to get this opportunity, uh, you know, I couldn't take a partial liver or just a lobe of a liver. I had to have a cadaver liver. And so in order for me to get this opportunity that changed my life, I knew that on the other end of the spectrum was a family that experienced tremendous loss to make that opportunity possible for me. And so obviously, you know, I've got so much thanks and gratitude and appreciation for uh, for the donor. And, uh, you know, I keep his or her uh, family in my prayers every day. It's really an unbelievable story. And so how, you, how, how are you feeling now? Because you're back at work uh, promoting Tennessee basketball and, and, and athletics. What are you able to do in terms of limitations and um, go about your sort of your daily life? Well, Andy, I've been super, super blessed that uh, in the weeks since my transplant, I've managed to avoid any major complications. And that's a credit, obviously, to uh, uh, my surgical team at Vanderbilt. They're outstanding. Um, but really, I mean, 24 hours post-op, I was uh, up and walking around. I did five laps around the ICU um, walking. Uh, and I'm sure they weren't very fast, but it was, it was an accomplishment. And I think the fact that I had been actually on the um, waiting list for four years and two months, it really gave me an opportunity to, to, to get my mind right and go in with a plan and, uh, you know, attack it the right way. Uh, in the, in the couple of weeks that, uh, following my surgery, I had to stay in Vanderbilt. So I was, uh, in Nashville. So I was there for several weeks and, uh, would go to the hospital every other day for a blood work. And I met a lot of other, uh, liver transplant recipients during that time. And one gentleman was on the list for a day before he got the call. And I said, golly, I was on the list for four years and two months. And, and really I, I thought to myself, I can't imagine finding out on one day, you're going to be put on the liver transplant list and then getting the call the next day, hey, we're going to take you into surgery. I mean, you have like no time to process that. I was really frustrated during that four years that I wasn't getting the call. But at the same time, it was probably a blessing because it really allowed me to go in with the right mindset and say, hey, you know, when I get the surgery, it's a wonderful opportunity and I'm going to, I need to attack it and I need to, you know, do everything that I can in terms of rehab and, and, not, and not be lazy and, and, and really try to get back um, so I can get back to, to work and get back to my team as soon as possible. So really, that's been the case. Uh, I've, I've, aside from a few dietary restrictions on some uh, fruits that uh, react poorly with my anti-rejection medicine, which is some um, pills that I'll just take every day for the rest of my life. Uh, aside from that, I really don't have many restrictions. It's kind of whatever I feel like I'm able to do. And so, how about exercise? Uh, well, I can um, to a point. Uh, I still have some soreness around my incision site. I had 47 staples in my abdomen, um, and so. Uh, you know, I've, I've got to be pretty limited. I can't run or, or jump or anything yet, but that'll all come and my energy will come back. Um, but, you know, our basketball team leaves tomorrow to go to New York City for the NIT season tip off. And I'm blessed to be able to make that trip. A few weeks ago, I, I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to go on that trip. But like I said, we've just been very blessed in our recovery and 
my wife deserves a lot of credit for taking good care of me these past few weeks and uh, I've been able to kind of jump back and, 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 you know, get back in the SID chair and, and it feels wonderful to be back. Well, I'll tell you, uh, there are times around Thanksgiving where you're thankful for things. I know in your family, the Tennessee family, the extended college basketball family, we are incredibly thankful that you have gone through this on the other side. You've got a new liver and you're going to be around with us doing your job as one of the best in the country for a long time to come. I appreciate you sharing your story, Tom, and I'm just so thrilled that things are going well for you. And as I said, on this Thanksgiving, I'm thankful that you're doing well. Absolutely. As, as am I, and you're very kind and uh, just, just very blessed. I owe a lot to God. Thanks, Tom. No problem, Andy. I appreciate you. Coming up next year on March Madness 365, Pepperdine head coach Lorenzo Romar will join me to discuss what it's been like on campus since the wildfires broke out in Southern California. And joining me now on March Madness 365, Pepperdine head coach Lorenzo Romar. And coach, I know I'm catching you here as we're taping, uh, coming back from a trip to the Bahamas, you're going recruiting. Uh, I'm curious, uh, have you had a chance to touch base as to, I know you haven't been there physically over the last couple of days, of what the atmosphere is like right now in Malibu after the fires? I, I really don't know. I, things, uh, I believe things are, have calmed down a lot, but... At the same time, there was so much devastation there. So much was lost. Uh, I know people are still recovering and just trying to find their way. But the the fear of the fires being ongoing right now, I think, have have ceased quite a bit. So take me back to when this started and, you know, the smoke, the fire, to where the Pepperdine administration basically had a – a decision to make. You know, we've got a clear campus and, and use this more of a staging ground than to hold classes and athletic events. But what, what was like in those moments when those decisions were going down? Well, you knew something had to be done. Initially, it wasn't coming our way. and The winds were really, really blowing heavily and it, it shifted. So the fire jumped and it, it got really close to campus. And then you could actually see the flames. And, you know, because of the smoke, because of uh, the roads being closed and all, they decided to to just shut everything down. Uh, people, if they were commuting, couldn't get back and forth. People were concerned. I mean, people felt uh, for their lives for for a little bit there, for, for a second. But I do think I was on the campus when the fires were going on, and there were a number of students that were there. They were in a really safe place, shelter, uh, self safe shelter on campus. In fact, there were several of them, and the uh, the fire department did a great job of fighting the fires and everything calmed down. So, you know, you, you don't get great training for crisis management, and certainly of that magnitude. You have a responsibility, not just, you know, for you, your family, but also your staff and your players. So when something like that happens and there's a natural disaster coming your way, and you've got to make sure that everyone that you are responsible for is accounted for, how do you go about that? Well, it's really tough. You know, people say, well, you're nervous or you're scared. You don't have time to be either. You're in the foxhole. <laughs> and you just, you know, you want to make sure everybody's 
right near where you are. You want to make sure everybody's accounted for. You want to make sure you try to keep everyone calm while still checking with school officials and security and the fire department, uh, those that are working, the firefighters. Where are we with this? Should we do something different? Should we change course? So you're constantly on the move. There's no time to rest at that point, but you want to make sure that everybody that you're around is safe. And so what did you do with your team? We were right there. We were uh, one of the shelters was the gymnasium and we were there. And uh, eventually our guys, when it, when, the, when it was safe, eventually drove off and, and left and we were able to leave campus. It's just you couldn't get back on. So all of our guys were safe and, and all sound and, and fine. And obviously you guys had a, you had to cancel a game. We um, did. Has that game re- be rescheduled? Yes, it's going to be for December 3rd on a Monday. And what are some of the plans for, uh, you know, any kind of donations or w- w- what's the Pepperdine athletic community trying to do to maybe help uh, those in the community that, um, you know, obviously suffered tremendous loss? Well, there's still a lot of discussion over that, but uh, I know obviously they closed everything down. Classes won't resume until Monday, uh, the 26th, I believe. They're just trying to clean up everything on campus right now and still trying to sort it out, Andy. You know, with that being said, where classes were canceled and you guys were on this road trip, um, you know, not every student body, student group, even team could do something like that. How much do you think, you know, this was, uh, I don't want to say positive, you know, but something where you guys could even bond more because all this is happening either on campus or around campus and you're away from it, but... You, everyone on the team knows this is happening and giving you guys an opportunity uh, to become even closer. Well, you know, I don't think you're, you're looking at it that way, but you are together. And, I, you know, hopefully down the road you do get closer as a result because you have to stick together. But, again, it's it's not just you. You know, there were so many people affected by the fires and still being affected. So it's not just a bonding together. It's kind of a bond with your community. You know, for you, Lorenzo, and we haven't had a chance to talk since you came back. What's it like to be back in that community? You know, it's not always easy to to go back to to a, to a similar area, a similar school, same place, especially when a lot of time has passed. What's that been like for you? Well, it's tough because, uh, Andy, as we speak, I'm still at the airport. <laughs> I haven't got been able to go back to haven't been back to Pepperdine since last week. Haven't been on campus. Haven't been in the community. Uh, everyone had to evacuate. We had to evacuate from our own home. So I haven't been back to get a feel for it yet. And what's the status of your house? Thank God it's okay. Yeah, it was touch and go for a minute, but it's okay. But I also mean, what, what's it like to return to a you know you're back in Southern California uh, in your coaching career, and it's been a long time since you were back in Southern California. What, what's that like for you to be back in familiar turf? More experienced, older, more mature, uh, a different point in your life. It's been great. Uh, the first time, it was my first head, head job after being an assistant at UCLA. And it was kind of a blur, you know. You're kind of uh, hitting the ground running here, like you said. More experience, more situations you've been involved with. And I actually am enjoying it more now than I was the first time. And I enjoyed it the first time. Well, Lorenzo, I know you got to run, and I appreciate it. And obviously, we hope that everything works out well uh, for everyone in the Malibu community. Um, but uh, I'm sure that uh, your team is, is certainly benefiting from your leadership uh, during uh, this kind of a crisis. Well, again, uh, you get to find out who your leaders are, too. And uh, we have a great group of guys 
great character and you're, you're really able to trust him in these situations. So it's, so far it's worked out. Appreciate it, Lorenzo. Thank you. Travel safe. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Coming up here on March Madness 365, we'll be joined by Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News and the Big Ten Network. We're going to discuss the national scene in college basketball. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News, longtime college basketball columnist, as well as a Big Ten Network analyst in studio in Chicago. Uh, Mike, let's go a little national here. There's a lot of action going on this week as we're taping. This is Monday. Uh, Maui Invitational is going to get going. It's a monster field. Uh, so as, as people are listening to this, some of the results already will be coming in. So let's just talk a little bit big picture. Uh, at the top of the poll, Duke has certainly earned their spot. Kansas, uh, Gonzaga, Virginia, Carolina, um, uh, that seems to be at least right now for and Michigan uh, of sort of the the top grouping. Which team do you think in that second tier, if you will, six to ten, seven to eleven, that you could see over the next week or two, sort of creeping into that top group? Well, you know, I think that uh, I think Auburn is going to get a chance to show what they're capable of in Maui, and and I, I think they're a dangerous team, really talented, really deep. Uh, not no longer uh, undersized uh, with Wiley back, so I, I think that, that that's a team that has a chance to show itself over that period of time. Uh, I, I, I do believe Kentucky will be back, and I, I, I think it's kind of good for them that the way this schedule has been broken down, that they you know they started with the big game against Duke. You either win it. And and then go and try to see what you you know what what needs to be fixed and uh, and then try to make sure your guys don't get too uh, high over that uh, or you get or you lose and in this case lose badly and then realize you've got a lot of things to figure out and I think the the first several games for Kentucky uh, since the, since that Duke game they've shown that they still have a lot of things to figure out who are they what are they good at uh, you know what what's their best rotation. And they have to find a way to start making some shots. I mean, they need Tyler Hero to, to make more shots. They need Kelvin Johnson to make more shots. They get to get, get Quad A Green in better position to make shots. They got to get Emmanuel quickly, who I know is not. I would not call him an elite shooter, but he certainly is capable of making three point shots. They got to get all those guys uh, comfortable with their touch because their their ambition is to minimum make the Final Four and. and probably they would say win a national championship and they are not going to do that with the kind of three-point performances that they've been putting on paper so far this season the other one you mentioned that is uh, after people should be listening to this because we're posting on late monday night is tennessee uh they got a huge week this week they're going to take on louisville in the garden in the nitc season tip-off then either kansas or marquette let's assume it may be kansas if it is, that's a Tennessee-Kansas matchup. That's a kind of a lead eight kind of game. Uh, what are your early thoughts on the Vols? Well, they're, 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 to this point, they've been terrific. Uh, got a chance to see some of their game against Georgia Tech, and they just owned the Yellow Jackets in that game physically. Uh, you, can't, you can't argue with how they play. They know who they are. Uh, they, you, you go into a game against them, and it's a little bit like Michigan's become, uh, although I think Michigan's a little bit more dynamic defensively uh, in, in certain spots. Uh, you just aren't going to take the ball where you want it to go a lot of times, and so you have to find ways around that. 
they're going to take away what you want to do. They're going to uh, punish you physically when they can. It's, it's a tremendous defensive team, but I think it's a much better offensive team than the one that won the SEC a year ago. I think we've seen improvement at the guard positions. Uh, you know, we've seen Grant Williams, uh, I think, take his game to another level. Uh, last year, kind of a revelation and, and won the, the SEC Player of the Year award because of consistency as much as anything. I think he's shown in the early games this year that he's going to be much more than that this season, that he's going to be a much more effective offensive weapon and one that teams really have to worry about and account for when they go in to play the Vols. All right, two teams I want to get your opinion on. One is Buffalo. Uh, the Bulls cracking the top 25 after they win at West Virginia in overtime to start the season. Then, you know this, I know this, maybe mainstream people don't know this, that they stayed on the road and then won at Southern Illinois, which is not an easy game. They're decent this season. You're on the road, in their gym, in Carbondale. Like, that's a good road win, a true road win. They've got some other good games coming up. Hypothetically, if they win the MAC, they take care of business in this non-conference, and let's say they lose in the MAC title to Eastern Michigan, a decent team in their league, uh, and they maybe pick up maybe one other, maybe they only lose one non-conference game, they've got a couple other good ones coming up. Uh, and so they've got maybe two losses or something like that, maybe three max. And I know I'm putting a high threshold here for Buffalo because not even yes. winning the Mac, but right. So you tell me what, what do you think is that line for Buffalo to get in as an at large? And for the first time since 1999, the Mac getting multiple bids. I think the first thing that when you talk about, when you talk about Buffalo is remembering that it is very rare to, 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 dominate the Mac. Um, it happened, I can't remember the year now, earlier part. Kent State did it. Kent State. Uh, it happened with Akron when they had Zeke Marshall. Uh, and then they, 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 I think it was 2013 maybe, uh, that they had Zeke Marshall and then they had a, their point guard um, got into trouble and, and was asked to leave the team, as I recall. And so that team kind of... Uh, uh, sort of lost its mojo, and I and you know when they got in the tournament, they weren't as good as they were expected to be when they got in the NCAA's. Um, but other than that, you, you you know usually you see teams in the MAC lose four or five games and still win the league because the the, the nature of the conferences is, is it's so balanced. I mean, all the schools are kind of similar. You know, big state schools with you know with uh, you know with good fan bases and. And, you know, and obviously they're all in basketball territory, Illinois, uh, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan. I mean, there's a lot of really good players in those places. And so it's not easy to do what you're talking about. But let's say they do it. You know, I've been an advocate for years, Andy, of the committee having a deeper understanding of dominance and what it means and how and how it translates to NCAA tournament success. The teams that win like Loyola a year ago, entering the tournament at 28 and five. That was a, that was one of the best teams in the country by March. And I I don't think that the committee has often acknowledged that. And I don't know whether the change to the net rating, the new, the new RPI, whatever you want to call it, uh, the new rating that they have. I don't know if that will change their attitude towards those teams. I hope it does Uh, because I've gone back over and I haven't done this in a while, but I used to do, 
uh, every year a, a recounting of what the teams that won better than 80% of their regular season games did in the NCAA tournament. And they always outperformed the teams that, that squeezed in because they went 8-8 eight and eight in power leagues. Uh, and I, you know, it's always been disappointing to me that the teams like Monmouth – uh, don't get in. Uh, Illinois State a couple of years ago. Murray State, I think, in 2015. Drexel one year. Yeah, I, I, those teams belong. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I always hate when people say, you know, give them a chance, give them a break. I, they don't deserve a break. They deserve what they earn. And I think they earn more than they're acknowledged to get. All right, so the last team in that vein uh, is Furman. And once again, not easy to do all this in the SOCON. But they have now won at Loyola Chicago. Then they won at Villanova. True road wins. Okay. Let's say, and I looked at their schedule, they've got one other opportunity where they're at LSU. And then it's, you know, a lot of teams that are like them. What's the threshold for Furman for the SOCON to maybe get two bids after what Furman has done? Uh, Unfortunately for Furman, uh, based on history, I mean, and Murray State probably being the best example of that. Now, that Murray State 2015 team did not win, excuse me, did not lose a conference game. And they did not lose a game, I think, from something like, well, from, I don't remember the exact date, but no, end of November until they lost on like a buzzer shot in the OVC championship game to a very good Belmont team. And they, so they lose that game, and they hadn't lost in almost four months. And they didn't get in because of all those things. Now, Furman's advantage over that Murray team is that they've taken advantage of a couple of non-conference opportunities. Now we don't know what Loyola is going to do. Uh, it would, you know, if I'm Furman, as much as I'm worried about, uh, you know, beating uh, Asheville and beating Western Carolina and Elon and these kind of people that they're going to play over the next couple of weeks, as much as I'm worried about that, I mean, I'm also cheerleading for Villanova and Loyola now. You know, get your get your act together, guys. Because if they go out and win the Big East and win the uh, and win the uh, Valley, uh, then all of a sudden those wins become high quality wins. And so then, what you do in conference play, you know, starts to maybe count a little bit more. I would say that more than likely, and this is presuming that those two wins become quality wins. And you know, we don't know what. You know, what either is, we expect that both of them are going to be excellent basketball teams by the end. We don't know for sure. But if they do, and then maybe they drop, maybe uh, Furman drops that LSU game that they have uh, right before Christmas. I I think in their league, um, they're going to have to go probably close to whatever and one. And I don't know exactly how many games the Southern plays in conference play now, but they're going to have to lose one. Uh, and that's it, and then lo- and then lose the title game, and that, and then that I think at that point they're at least they're, they're in the picture. Uh, and again, uh, some of this is all speculative, based on you know basically you're going on past committee behavior, right? And I don't I don't know what the I don't have a clue uh, what the new ratings whether that'll have an impact on what they do. It, it may help them, it may hurt them, it may not matter. I I can't. You know, we're all in, a, in the dark to an extent on projecting what might work uh, for teams this year. And that's including, that's not just, uh, you know, a low major league like the Southern or a mid-major league uh, like the, the MAC. It's, uh, you know, it's also including, you know, the fringe teams or the bubble teams or whatever from the high major leagues. We don't know how they'll be affected either. Mike, always a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, everyone should go to, uh, I'm trying to remember your Twitter handle. Tell me again. TSN Mike.
for all his columns on the sporting news, and you can watch him on the Big Ten Network as well. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andy. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. I hope everyone out there has a wonderful Thanksgiving. And as always, thanks for listening.